Good morning, Rogers Park. It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Phil Adams. I'm the church planning pastor over in West Rogers Park, where we're seeking to plant home churches there. Um, God is being good and faithful, as you know. Um, we're in the middle of a series um, entitled Stay the Course, working through the book of Galatians. So if you've got a Bible with you, please turn to Galatians chapter 3. We're in Galatians chapter 3 this morning. If you've got one of the house Bibles, you can turn to page 973. That's page 973. Let me read from Galatians chapter 3. We'll read the whole way down to verse 14. It says this, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Let's pray. God, we just come towards you right now, God. And we acknowledge why we're here this morning. We're here to come to you. We're here to gather, God, as the people of God, to worship you, to come to your word, God, to hear from you, God. So we ask that you will speak to our hearts. God, would you open our hearts to hear from you? God, would our hearts be tender, God? May we be attentive to hear from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Over the past few weeks, like I said, we've been going through a series entitled Stay the Course as we've been going through the book of Galatians. And we've been working through some what you might call some argumentation because at the beginning of Galatians, if you remember back, Paul uses some harsh language. And this is a little bit of an overview. He uses some harsh language for the sake of protecting the gospel. He tells his readers that we've only got one gospel, so if we distort it, we lose it. So the letter of Galatians is Paul showing total intolerance to anyone preaching a gospel that is anything other than salvation through faith alone in the work of Christ alone on the cross alone. Paul is saying salvation is a gift. It cannot be earned. It is not earned. But Paul, as we've been going through, wants to back up those words. He wants to back up his words by giving the authority through which he speaks. And he's been reminding them of his identity. 
If you remember back, he says, I am an apostle, meaning sent one, sent by Christ. His identity is not man-made, but his identity is God-given. He reminds them of his transformation, if you remember. If I didn't meet Jesus, what else would have changed me? What else would have convinced me to stop eradicating churches and start planting churches? He reminds them that not only his identity, but also the message he preaches is not man-made, but God-given. And as Jason shared last week, he had no problem, that is Paul, the apostle, had no problem demonstrating his authority over people distorting the gospel and confusing the gospel, whether it be false teachers or even other apostles. Paul in Galatians is protecting the gospel like it's a gift from God, like it's treasure, like it's the hope of the world. And this week, Paul circles back after establishing his authority. He's saying, you know who I am now. You've got it. You're going to listen to me. And he directly addresses the churches in Galatia again for the first time since the very beginning of the letter, if you remember back. And this is what he says. We just read it in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And what Paul is referencing when he says this is how these churches have altered their thinking. He's talking about how they've moved away from the gospel message, how they've supplemented it and they've changed it and specifically listened and affirmed false teaching. You will have heard this many a times over the previous weeks that they supplemented the gospel and they attached to the gospel the need for Jesus plus works. To be justified before God, that is to stand righteous before God. You need to trust in the work of Jesus, believe he died in your place, plus you need to trust in your ability to live within what they said were the boundaries of Jewish culture. You need to abide by Jewish customs and traditions if you're to be accepted by God. And Paul says, foolishness. He says, any move away from Christ alone is all sufficient for everything you need forever to be found righteous before God is foolishness. Or to put it positively, he says, all you need is belief that the cross is all sufficient for everything you need forever to be found righteous before God. And he says, who has bewitched you? (laughs) Meaning, has someone cast a spell on you? Who has fooled you? And then he says this. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And the tone in which Paul says this is, who who has fooled you because the gospel was so clear to you? You, You've seen it. There was a time in your life when you've seen it with such clarity. Christ hung on the cross before your literal eyes. You've seen the Son of God bearing the wrath of God for your sins to set you free from bondage of sin and proclaim over you that your sins are forgiven. You are now clothed in the righteousness of Christ because he was clothed in your curse. You've seen him take your place and God sealed your acceptance before him with the Holy Spirit in your life which you experienced And the way Paul finished this this sentence by saying, before your eyes, Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified, there's this great emphasis on the word crucified. Full stop. 
finished, completed, done. You've seen what was done, finished for you. But, but now you think the cross wasn't enough. You think you need to supplement it, and Paul says foolishness. Rogers Park, have you ever seen the cross of Christ with that kind of clarity? As to what it really is? Not as a religious symbol or, or a historical event, not a place of partial salvation, but has the cross ever given clarity to your soul? Clarity that at the cross alone we can find assurance forever of our sins forgiven and peace with God. Maybe you're here this morning and so far you're like, man, this guy sounds religious. And all I can ask is that you keep listening. Because at the cross of Jesus there is a peace you need and there is an assurance that you can't find anywhere else. But if you're here and the cross has given you that kind of clarity and that kind of peace and assurance of salvation, does it still? Because if you've moved on trying to find what only the cross can provide somewhere else, if you've let the cross fade into the background, thinking there's something else that will make you righteous in the eyes of God, Paul says, foolishness. Any move away from Christ alone is all sufficient for everything you need forever to be found righteous before God is foolishness. Or to put it positively, all you need is belief that the cross alone is sufficient for all you need forever to be found righteous before God. And then in the next verse, he, he asks them a question. He says, let, let, let me ask you just this, and then he asks them six questions. But we're going to look at the one that he says, let me ask you just this. He says, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And what Paul is, what he's conjuring up in their minds, in the minds of the readers, is their experience. By referencing the Spirit of God, he's referencing experience, not their theology, not the latest Christian book they've read, not the latest Crossway publication. He's asking them of their experience. He's asking about the tangible effects of receiving the Spirit of God in their lives. And what he really wants to know is in your recollection, as you remember it, as you've seen what God has done in your life, as you've seen the transformation in my life, as you've seen the transformation in your life, in verse 2 he references the experience of the Holy Spirit when they first became a follower of Jesus. Then in verse 2 he, he, he references their experience of the Holy Spirit in the present day, today. And he wants to know, do you think the evidence of the Holy Spirit the experience of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. Do you think that's on you? What Paul is making us think about this morning in Rogers Park is maybe, maybe when we first came to Christ, the transformation was so clear. We knew that something outside of the mundane and natural connected with our lives. We knew it was the Holy Spirit that was stirring in us new affections for Jesus, for Christ. It was clearly something outside of us working on our lives. 
but, but now do we just give thanks for our own determination? Do, do we just give thanks for our own ability to discipline ourselves? And do we see the Holy Spirit sitting somewhere back here in some vague theology? Rogers Park, have we started to attribute the work of God in our lives to our own work? Do, do we think we care for each other as brothers and sisters in our church because we've or, we're organized and we like cooking extra meals, no different to a social club, or do we see the Holy Spirit has binded us together supernaturally in love as the family of God? Do you think that you read word, God's word because you're disciplined and have created healthy habits and you've read the seven habits of highly effective people? Or do you think that the Holy Spirit continues to reveal the beauty of God's word to you? Do you think we as a church are pushing north into North RP, west into West RP, south down to Breakers Retirement Home because we are a church of go-getters who know how to leverage our resources? Or do we think God is doing what he's always promised to do, that is build his church through his people? Having begun by the Spirit, having come into acceptance before God through faith alone, belief alone, trust alone, in the work of Christ on the cross alone, are we now taking the work of God in our lives and holding it up to God as if it's our performance? Church, when we give our lives to Christ, the Holy Spirit indwelled us to be our helper, to convict us, to speak to us, to grow us, to point us to Jesus. But are we still so performance-driven, stuck in performance mode, that we even take God's work in our lives and try to pass it off as our performance? And the, the reason that I'm framing this passage in this way is that I want to suggest that the, the amount we attribute our lives to our own determination and our own abilities compared to the amount we attribute our lives to the work of God transforming us and working through us is a reflection of that residual desire to continue to perform and not rest in the cross just in case the cross wasn't enough. The big idea, or maybe better, the big question this morning is, are we resting in the cross as enough to secure our acceptance before God? Or are we still trying to perform and earn God's favor just in case the cross wasn't enough? And in the most sweeping way, Paul is saying with six questions, firing from lots of different angles, he's saying any move away from Christ alone is all sufficient for everything you need forever to be found righteous before God is foolishness. Or to put it positively, all we need is belief that the cross alone is all sufficient for everything we need forever to be found righteous before God. Rogers Park is the amount we attribute our lives to our own determination and abilities compared to the amount we attribute our lives to the work of God transforming us and working through us, a reflection of that residual desire to continue to perform just in case the cross wasn't enough. Are we continuing to perform for God's favor? Or do we say we have been saved by grace? We are being, we are being kept by grace and are being transformed into the image of Christ by grace. 
Do we say, look at what God has done, look what God is doing in my life, or do we say, God, look what I'm doing? And Paul was checking them on this because he wanted to know, having begun in the Spirit, in Galatia, having come into the acceptance before God through faith alone, belief alone, trust alone, and the work of Christ on the cross alone, have the Judaizers, these false teachers that came into the church in Galatia, caused them to drift back into performance mode. And in the next few verses, Paul wants to point out their history. We're going to go into the history of Israel because he wants to show that acceptance before God Justification has never been earned through performance, that it's never been earned through performance. And it's always been through faith alone, belief alone, trust alone, and faith alone, belief alone, trust alone, and the work of God alone has always been enough. So to understand where the Apostle Paul goes from here, at the end of at verse 5, we would benefit from learning just a little bit more about these Judaizers and these false teachers. So bear with me. You might learn something this morning, hopefully. <laughs> because in verse 5 and 6, Paul throws a kind of like a curveball. That is a sporting illustration, which I'm very proud of. A curve, curveball. Isn't that good? Okay, verse 5. Does, <laughs> does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or hearing with faith? It's the same rhetorical question again. And the way the question is asked, it insinuates that they already know the answer. They've received the Holy Spirit by faith, not performance. They've received the Holy Spirit by belief. They're looking at their lives and saying, yes, when I experienced the Holy Spirit and he transformed me, there was no way I was perfect. So it must have been through belief. It could not have been through performance. And then Paul throws this kind of curveball that they, because he's saying that they received the Holy Spirit by faith just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul is pointing back into the history of Israel to show the connection that's always been between belief in God and receiving righteousness. The history that's always been between believing God and receiving righteousness. So let me, let me try and explain this because when we, when we read that, that, that Abraham gets brought up in these verses, it's like, say, well, who's he? Well, what's Abraham doing here? But, but for the, the readers in Galatia, Abraham was incredibly familiar. He wasn't just another Jew. He was the father of all Jews. He was the first. He had, he had grown to believe, and, and the, the Jews had grown to believe that they were accepted before God simply based on their national connection to Abraham, the first one of them. And the way they, they conceived this was to be a son of Abraham was to be a son of God. To be a daughter of Abraham was to be a daughter of God. And this is one of the really key reasons why the Judaizers and religious leaders were so unwilling to give up Jewish traditions and national identity as a requirement to be accepted by God because how can you be accepted by God without a connection to Abraham? He's the father of God's chosen people. We must, we have to stay connected to Abraham. We must ensure we are his sons and his daughters. It was even common in this day for Jewish rabbis, that's, that's Jewish teachers, they would paint pictures of Abraham standing watch at the gates of hell, ensuring none of his children accidentally entered. So, so the prevailing belief was we must stay connected to Abraham. We must ensure that we're his sons and his daughters. 
And where the Judaizers' teaching comes in is that they said if you're a Gentile, which is one of us, if you're a non-Jew that wants to be accepted by God, you must trust in Christ plus become a son or daughter of Abraham by changing your national identity and culture to Jewish. The cross wasn't enough. We need performance. You need to change your nationality and your culture to Jewish. How else would you stay connected to Abraham? We, we see some of this confusion, and there's a story in John chapter 3, and we read about a, a man called Nicodemus. This man was a Pharisee. He was a deeply, deeply religious Jew. It says in John chapter 3, he was a ruler of Jews. This man was the epitome of a son of Abraham. He claimed acceptance before God based on his national identity, his heritage, and his bloodline. And this Nicodemus, this teacher, he sneaks out at night in the dark to see Jesus. And this is what he says. He says, when he gets to Jesus, Rabbi, teacher, we, we know that you're a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs to, unless God is with him. He was thinking about Jesus' miracles. What, what this deeply religious man was doing, he was showing solidarity with Jesus. He was giving Jesus his approval. He's saying, Jesus, Rabbi, from my vantage point as a religious leader who has the authority to affirm godly behavior in people and the authority to affirm ungodly behavior in people as a son of Abraham myself, Jesus, I believe that your behavior is from God. I affirm, Jesus, that God is with you. And Jesus responds with this really famous line. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And what Jesus insinuates is that Nicodemus is an outsider to the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus responds, he maybe tried to keep his composure. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter in a second time into his mother's womb and be born again? And what Nicodemus is really saying is, say, what? What do you, what do you mean unless I'm born again? I can't see the kingdom of God. Maybe, it's, maybe you didn't realize it is dark, Jesus, but I'm a Jew. I was born with the right nationality. I was born into Jewish heritage. I was born into the chosen people of God. What do you mean I need to be born again? I'm already a son of Abraham. I'm accepted by God based on my nationality and my heritage and my bloodline. What we have to see this morning is that when we, when we zoom out and we cover the whole narrative of Scripture, he was just wrong his, his thinking was all wrong. The religious hierarchy which Nicodemus was in was wrong. The religious hierarchy which Nicodemus in had missed what made sons of Abraham sons of God. They'd missed it. They had missed what made sons of Abraham accepted by God. They had missed ultimately what made Abraham a son of God. They'd missed what made Abraham righteous. It wasn't his Jewishness. 
It wasn't his nationality. It wasn't his bloodline or family tree or heritage. It wasn't his circumcision. It wasn't his behavior. It wasn't his performance. It wasn't the law. That all came after. Abraham was considered righteous before God because he believed God. Genesis 15, verse 5, God says to Abraham, he, bring, he says, come on outside, Abraham, and he says, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you can count them. And then God said, so shall your offspring be. And then it says, and Abraham believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God over that which deemed impossible. He, he believed what God said. He believed what God said he would do. He believed God. And in Galatians 3, verse 6, Paul quotes Genesis 15, verse 5. You can see it there, and it says, Abraham's belief was counted to him as righteousness. He became righteous in the eyes of God. It's a banking term. It's as if he was filled up entirely with credit of righteousness so that when God looked at Abraham from that day forward, he seen righteousness. And in Galatians 3, 7, Paul clarifies further for the Galatians, know then it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Those sons of belief are those who are the sons of Abraham, not those of Jewishness, not those of a certain nationality, not those of a certain bloodline or family tree or heritage, not those of circumcision, not those of certain behavior, not those of certain performance. Verse 7 clarifies, Know then it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And what made sons of Abraham sons of God was their faith, belief alone. And yet, as time went on throughout the Old Testament and through Israel's history until the time of Christ and the time of the letter to Galatians, which we're reading right now, what started off with such clarity, with Abraham, with such clarity, what gave Abraham assurance of peace with God, his belief and trust in the Word of God throughout history, this faded into the background and what emerged was this religious system that reflected our human residual desire to not rest in believing God, but continue to perform just in case believing wasn't enough. In, this, in which this morning we see a reflection of our own residual desire to not rest in the cross, but continue to perform just in case the cross wasn't enough. Look... Looking at the next few verses, I just want to point out two effects or two, two consequences of continuing on as Christians driven by performance and not faith. Two consequences of it. Number one, when we are driven by performance, we lose sight of our mission. When we are driven by performance, we lose sight of our mission. Read with me verses 8 and 9. Galatians 3 verses 8 and 9. It says this. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. 
So then those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. So, so what verses 8 and 9 are saying is that way back when Abraham was counted as righteous due to faith in God, it was the beginning of God's plan of redemption for the world. It's the beginning of God's plan of redemption for us. Those, those stars in the sky were to turn into offspring that would become the nation of Israel, being counted a light to the nations that would draw the nations in towards God, God so that they could, the nations could be counted righteous through faith. And yet what happened was that Israel ended up taking what made them unique, their unique culture and their unique law that God had given them to draw in the world, But instead, by the time of Christ, Israel was using what God gave them to say, look how much better we are from the world. And they took that which was to draw in the world towards God and used it to create barriers keeping the world out so they were elevated above the world. They used the resources God gave to save the world for their own performance. Why? Insecurity. Because not resting in God's word over them caused them to lean into that residual desire to continue performing just in case believing wasn't enough. What does that mean for us? It means we need to fight against being insecure Christians. It means we need to fight against being Christians that aren't resting in God's grace. Because otherwise, we'll need to perform. And performance means bigger. It means better. It means elevation. It means pointing at something other than the cross, saying, love me for that. Love me for that. Rogers Park, we as the Western church, we don't build cathedrals anymore, but boy, do we build a lot of stages. We might not elevate ourselves to being the Pope, but boy, do we elevate ourselves to being celebrity pastors. I don't, I don't pretend of all of the answers in this area, but I know that the, the nation of Israel were meant to be a light to the nations, bringing people in to meet God, but what hindered them was that they got distracted by performance. When I, when I grew up in Ireland, and... Uh, I traveled a lot with my family who are very involved in missions. And then Ruth and I, we lived in China. And I could, I could never understand how one part of the world could have a church that was brimming with resources, brimming with seminaries and Christian publishing houses, brimming with money and the best preachers and the best conferences. And then in another part of the world, you can have millions and millions of people that have never met a follower of Christ. I could never understand why over here just seemed to, from my view, just seemed to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and over here just to seemed to stay as a footnote. Within a church that follows a book that 12 chapters in makes it clear, if you want to follow this book, you're going to have to bless the nations. You're going to have to be sent to the nations. You're going to have to disperse across the nations. And now that I'm here, I'm beginning to understand. Because I can feel the pull. Do you know what the pull is? Performance. 
to, the pull is to build my own name instead of disappearing to build someone else's. The pull to resource myself instead of disappearing for the sake of resourcing someone else. And you know what's at the root? Because I see it in my heart. That residual desire to continue performing just in case the cross wasn't enough. I need something to say. Love me for that. When we are dissatisfied, when we are distracted or disbelieving in the love of God, we seek that love from others. So the most God-saturated, God-satisfied, God-serving people in the world may well be the most unknown because they don't need our platforms and they don't need our praise. What would it look like if we were secure enough in the love of God to disappear from the applause of others? Who would we be free to serve? The second effect or consequence of continuing on as Christians driven by performance, number one, we're driven by performance, we lose sight of our mission. Number two, when we're driven by performance, we live under a curse. We've already thought about this a little bit in this series. If you read verse 10 there, it says, For all who rely on works of the law under a curse are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. The curse of the law for us is living a life striving to attain the unattainable. The law shows us what we need to be, but it can never get us there. We've already thought about this earlier in this series. The curse of the law is attempting to be something in our own strength that we know we can't be. It's attempting to perform for the sake of attaining God's favor, which we can't earn. And it's exhausting. That's why it's a curse. And for Paul in his, this letter, he's pleading with the churches in, in Galatia, don't listen to the Judaizers. Don't go back to relying on the law it will exhaust you. It will be a curse to you. Thinking that you can rely on the law to become accepted by God, there's no peace there. And for us, there is no peace found in performing, God, performing for God's favor. It will consume us. It will cause us to climb over those around us to elevate ourselves. We'll be consumed in a never-ending cycle that doesn't satisfy if we keep performing for God's favor. Number one, when we're driven by performance, we lose sight of our mission. Number two, when we're driven by performance, we live under a curse. For us here today in this, in this church, in our church, in Rogers Park, we're in a different situation than the churches in Galatia because false teachers had caused them to, to alter the gospel while... We preach and believe salvation comes through faith alone and finished work of Christ on the cross. That's what we preach. We didn't start preaching that at the beginning of this series. That's what we've always preached. We've avoided false teachers, I think. <laughs> and yet, we can slip into this residual desire to continue to perform just in case the cross wasn't enough. So what's the solution? <laughs> Because if you can be a Christian and still fall back into performance, what is the solution? We have to believe the cross was enough. We have to believe the cross 
was enough. And you maybe are thinking, Phil, I think you said that 30 minutes ago. One of my favorite sentences in this whole passage that we read this morning is verse 1 where it reads this. It says, before your eyes, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. It was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. What's incredible about this is, this verse is, they weren't there. The people in Galatia, the the people in the church of Galatia, just like us, they were not there when Jesus was crucified. They weren't sitting meters from the cross when nails were driven into his hands. They weren't there when the crown of thorns was placed on his head. They weren't there when the soldiers gambled for Jesus' clothes and mocked him and spat on him. They weren't there when Jesus called out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They weren't there when the sky went dark. They weren't there when Jesus cried out, it is finished. They weren't there when God so loved them that God gave his son for them. They weren't there, and yet Paul says they seen it. Paul says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. You've seen it with such clarity. How is that possible? I don't know, but I've seen it. And I know many in our room this morning have seen it too. But where we go forward is realizing that we can't leave the cross as a memory for the day we became a Christian. We can't leave the cross behind as if we believe Jesus paid our entry fee into Christianity, but we pay the monthly membership fee through our works. We can't leave the cross behind. This is what it means in verse 11. The righteous shall live by, the, by faith. We never leave faith behind because we never leave the cross behind. We got to pin it up. We got to hold it up. We got to keep seeing it. In verse 1, to publicly portray the cross, crucifixion, what it means there in the Greek was to display it like a billboard. We got to place ourselves at the foot of the cross daily. We got to watch the nails. We got to see the crown of thorns. We got to hear the words every day. It is finished. We place the cross before our eyes so we continue to believe what we already know. In the morning, we need to see it pinned to our fridge. Today, you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. In the car, we need to see it pinned to our windshield. Today, your sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. In the office, we need to see it pinned to our desk. Today, God calls your your daughter. He calls you son. In the CTA, we need to see it pinned to the window. Today, your failures can't change your identity in Christ. In the evening, we need to see it pinned to our TVs. Tonight, you can rest. Your debt is paid. The cross was enough. In the next morning, we need to see it wrapped around our coffee mug. Today, Christ redeemed you from the curse of the law by by becoming a curse in your place. This is how we fight off believing we need to continue to perform for God's favor. We don't let the cross out of our sight. We've got to hold the cross up for one another. In our small groups, in our services, in our prayer gatherings, in our volunteer teams. We've got to remind one another 
Any move away from Christ alone is all sufficient for everything we need forever to be found righteous before God is foolishness. Or to put it positively, all we need is to believe that the cross alone is all sufficient for everything we need forever to be found righteous before God. So from here on out, when we see the cross every day, when we put it in front of us, when we don't let it out of our sight, we'll know that we don't work for God's acceptance, but we work from it. Let's pray. God, we come before you and we thank you for the cross. God, would you forgive us for letting it get out of our sight? God, forgive us for thinking that we can perform, God, that there's things that we need to do to earn God's favor, God, as if the Son of God was not enough. God, take us to the cross even now as we finish this service, God. Reveal to us once again, God, show us like a billboard. Reveal to us what it meant for the Son of God to come and die and bear the sins, our sins, God, on the cross, God, so that we could be clothed with Christ's righteousness, God. And so that today when God looks at us, he sees that our sins are forgiven. He sees righteousness. He sees that our account, our credit is full of righteousness due to Christ on the cross. God, may we go out and live lives that are a response to that, God, not earning God's favor, but living from God's favor, God. May we have joy, God. May we have excitement and anticipation, God. May we have passion, God, to share our peace with those around us. In Jesus' name.